following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. You know, I'm really thankful that everybody here decided that uh, they were going to come and worship with this morning instead of going out and enjoying the beautiful weather outside and going to a picnic. It's always encouraging to me when we gather together as a family and lift up our voices together to worship of our King. Huh? So thank you for being here. Well, when Dave asked me uh, to speak, he let me pick whatever uh, text that I wanted to speak on. And what I did was I I took a look at a a, a text that has become very meaningful to me over the last couple of years. I don't know if you are, are like me, but over the years... God speaks to you from a specific text, and that kind of comes around to be your go-to place for a while. When, when struggles happen, when things aren't going the way that you'd hope they would, or you just need to come and sit at the feet of our Lord and hear him speak to you, there's that scripture, that go-to scripture that comes in. It kind of changes along with our seasons of life. An example would be, for me, years ago, my go-to was Philippians. I love to go there because there was encouragement found there. Paul was encouraging his readers to rejoice in the Lord, to rejoice always, even amidst the trouble. In chapter 2, he explains God become man, condescending to come for me, to rescue me, and the beauty of that picture. Other times, it was, say, Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, What I would consider my life verse, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and run the race before us. Each one of those has spoken to me in a strong way. As a matter of fact, I have a Bible in my office sitting on top of a shelf that I've had since I was 14. And and I used to, when I felt that God was speaking to me from one of these scriptures, I'd write a date in there. That Bible is all tattered and falling apart, but I keep it because it's, it's part of my journey in Christ. Today, I would like to share one that's been to my go-to scripture for probably a year and a half, two years now, Romans chapter eight. And it seems that uh, when the world around us The culture that we live in, the government that we function under, appears to be in this time to be shifting sand. It's moving so rapidly in directions that we find disturbing. Our culture has changed. And I need a place to go to. I go to Romans chapter 8. And about a year ago on March, a little better than a year ago, March, I preached on Romans Chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. And what I'd like to do this morning is I would like to complete that chapter. That is, from where I left off to the end, which is verses 31 down through 39. And that's going to be the text that I'm going to preach on today. Uh, but before we do, Dave likes to come up front here. And before he preaches, he says, and this is the big picture. 
This is what I want you to get out of this message and out of this passage. And so this morning, that's what I'd like to do, because that's what our pastor likes to do. And the big picture this morning is simply the last song that we sang. He must hold us fast. Can you put it up on the on the overhead, boys? And it goes like this. I'm going to read it to you. Every now and then, I like to turn off the music, turn down the volume of the singing, and just read it. And you can see the heart of the poet that wrote this based on what God's word had told him and was impacting his heart and life. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold, but he must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, he will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. That's the theme that I want to draw out of this passage. So if you will turn with me to Romans chapter 8. The text that is really what we're going to speak out is verses 31 to 39. But I'm going to read from 26 on through. Because some of what we have to refer to to understand this passage in its entirety is found in verses 26 to 30. So if you'll stand with me in respect for God's word. Likewise, the Spirit helps our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. For he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become formed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren, For those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pray with me. Lord God, as we read the incredible promises that have been laid out in this passage for us, our hearts rejoice of what a God we serve, what a God who has invited us into his kingdom, what a God who has given his life so that we may have life eternal. Lord, I pray that now as we open up this scripture, that you would speak to our hearts. Teach us what we need to know this day, Lord. We pray that you would lay a banquet before us this morning for our hungry souls. And Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, in this passage, is asking several rhetorical questions, such as, if God is for us, who can be against us? Or who is to condemn us? Or who would indeed, or excuse me, who would separate us from the love of Christ? And then he answers those questions for us. But I, in my outline that you have that was in your bulletin, I'm asking some questions as well to help us grasp the fullness of what's being presented to us here in this section of Scripture. He starts off by saying, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? So we want to know, what are these things that he's presenting that cause us to believe that God is for us? What validation is there in God's word that God is for us? I know as for me, and hopefully for you, I like the idea that God is for me. The ruler of the universe is for little insignificant Dave Rubel. The passage says so. How do I know that? What validates that? So if we back up to verse 22 and start, excuse me, 26 and start working our way down through that text, he's going to tell us what validates it. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
For we do not know how to pray as we ought, so he intercedes for us because he knows what the mind of the Father is. So for starters, it's telling us that even when I don't know how to pray, how to bring my concerns, the weight of my soul that's on me before God, it says the Holy Spirit is going to intercede for me in those prayers with groanings too deep for words because the Holy Spirit knows what the mind of the Father is. And he's going to pray according to the will of the Father. He goes on to say, verse 27, And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He then tells me that everything in my life... All experiences, the good experiences, the bad experiences, the ugly experiences, that God is going to turn those things into my benefit. He's going to work those things for my good. So even if those difficult times happen or I find myself in suffering and pain, he says that he is going to work those things out for my good. So I see that there's a power of God that's working in me. He goes on to carry it on even further. How is he going to accomplish that? He goes on verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He says that he foreknew me from the beginning of time, from beginning of creation. He knew who I was. There was an intimate relationship God was having and I didn't even exist yet because he knew who I was and he was predestining a path for me. From before I was born, there was a path predestined by God for this purpose, that I would be conformed to the image of his son. So God is telling me clearly in this passage what his will is. His will for David Rubel is that he has predestined me to become conformed to the image of his son. That's his will for me. That's his will for you. And when I learned that truth, when I came across that and began to put those pieces together, it revolutionized how I prayed. Because now I can pray in conjunction with what God's declared will is. He's not hidden it from me. He said, this is what it is. This is what I'm predestined for, to become conformed to the image of God's Son. And I'm a long way from that. But he says that he is working all things for that purpose, that I'm conformed to the image of his Son. He goes on. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those those who he justified, he also glorified. He's telling me now the path that he has predestined for me to walk on. He's saying, Dave, this is how I'm going to get you from where you were to conformity to the image of my son. I'm going to call you. The gospel message is going to go out into my heart. And I receive that gospel message. And then he justifies me. He now declares me just. Even though I'm a sinful man, because of the work of Christ, he now declares me just. He's predestined me 
to be conformed to the image of his son. He has now called me with an effectual call of the gospel message. And now he has glorified, or excuse me, he has justified me. That means the guy who was not just has now been justified because his son, who was just, bore my sins on the cross. So when he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He's saying that there won't be, he's not implying that there won't be anybody against us. There will be a lot of things against us. The world, the flesh, and the devil, to name a few. The world that we live in, the culture that we live in, is putting pressure on us to conform to its standard. It's a culture that does not have God as its director, as its leader. It has the, the wants and the desires of sinful people directing it. And the culture, that, are they called, what do they call it? The, the uh, cancel culture. This is how it works. If you don't believe what I believe, I'm going to slander you. I'm going to vilify you. I'm going to attack you until you bend to my will. So we do have an adversary out there. There are things that are struggling against God in our lives. The flesh is our own sinful nature that we're born with that can be easily drawn into what culture is drawing us into. And then the devil, who goes about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's our accuser. He says he accuses us night and day before the Father. And certainly we give him plenty to accuse us over, don't we? But it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He's presenting the highest potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who rules over all things. There is no higher court. There is no Judge Judy that can refute what God says. There is no Supreme Court. He is the Supreme Court. And God has declared me just. So no one can condemn me. And he did that through the process that we just looked at in verses 26 through 30. Not only that, but it's so firmly established in my justification that he claims that I am glorified. And we know from God's word that we are glorified when we leave this life and go to be with him. But he states it in the present tense because it is so absolutely certain, so anchored in his truth, in God's word, that it can be stated as though it has already happened. If God is for me, if God is for David Rubel, who is going to stand against him? Who is going to bring a charge against him? It is God who justifies. He then goes on. He who did not spare his own son, but gave her over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We're entering into port part of the uh, discussion here, the argument that Paul is bringing that really is holy ground. It's the peak of the highest mountain of our walk of faith. He's going to express to us the moment in time that everything had gone to the coming of Christ, the cross of Christ. 
and he's going to present his argument from the greater to the lesser. That is, the greater the sacrifice of Christ validates the lesser, that he will give us all things. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him over for us all. That is, that heaven exhausted its resources in the giving of the son. The highest debt was paid. The riches ransomed, presented. The highest value offered. The greatest sacrifice that could be made was made to rescue me. If God did not spare his own son, if he did not withhold his own son, forget the wording of this, but he gave him over for us. In some sense, Jesus has been given to us by God the Father. Not in the sense that we dominate or we control him, but he is our champion. When we were lost in our trespasses and sin, when a cloud of guilt and judgment hung over our heads, God took the greatest value that heaven could offer and purchased me. I'm going to turn over to 1 Peter because he speaks of this value of the price that was paid in such beautiful terms. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, it goes like this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He said, the price that heaven paid was not silver or gold. It was not dollars. It's not Deutschmarks. It's not yen. It's the blood of God's own son. And if we stand back and take a look at that, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what Paul is actually saying here is that God himself said, I'll be the sacrifice so I can save them. Their sin will take them to hell. But I will be their champion. I will condescend to become man and live the life they could not live because of their sin nature. And then I will freely give up my life so theirs can be spared. The highest price that heaven could pay has been paid for you and me, has been paid for us. So then, if God expended heaven as he did to purchase me, Paul's argument goes, how will he then not along with him freely give us all thanks? Does it stand not to reason that if he was willing to send Jesus, his son, to die on that cross, that he will not give us all things that is necessary? And I described those all things that I was looking at. They include uh, everything that God deems needful and necessary to achieve his proclaimed purposes in our lives. 
lives of his children and his disciples. And we just looked at that declared purpose. It's to see that we are conformed to the image of his son. Even the trials of life, the pain and the suffering, there is no wasted motion with God. Basically, he's saying that if God was willing to give his son to rescue us, he's now going to supply everything that we need for this walk of faith that he has called us to. When my kids were growing up, and they would have to deal with discouragement or loss or some type of pain or suffering, I would always tell them there's no wasted motion with God. That is, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what has happened, no matter what the loss is that you're faced, that God is going to use that for His purpose in you, which is to conform you to the image of His Son. There's no wasted motion, folks. Not a one, not a thing. The pain, the suffering, as well as the joy and the things that we rejoice in. God promises, I'm going to use all of those. Since I proved that I would by sacrificing my son for you, you can believe that I will give you what is necessary for this life. It is God that must hold us fast. I could never hold on to the trials of this life. But God so loved me that he holds me fast. He goes on. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is now at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. He starts down this list. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, condescended to become man and lived the life that we could not live, free of sin, and then gave his life up on the cross. As he was beaten and nailed to the cross, he cried out a victory cry. It is finished. Lord, receive me. And he gave up the ghost and died. No man takes his life from him. He states that in John chapter 10. No man takes my life from me. I give it up of my own accord. If I have been given the right to give it up, I also have the right to take it up again. Jesus willingly died and paid the price for you and me. And he could cry that victory cry. Can you imagine? Hanging on a cross, there could be a victory cry. Let's face it, a cross is an execution device. Just like an electric chair. It amazes me that we see people wearing a cross on their chain around their neck. And I wonder how many people know what that represents. It's an execution device. There's designed to create maximum pain and suffering in the one who's nailed to it. Jesus is nailed to that cross, and he says, it is finished. Victory over death, victory over sin. The price was paid so that you and I can be set free. We can be made sons and daughters by adoption by the finished work of Jesus Christ. He goes on, but more than that, he was raised from the dead on the third day. 
The resurrection is God's stamp of approval on Jesus' work on our behalf. God rose Jesus from the dead, validating that every sin that has ever been committed by his children, that he is predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, has been paid for at that cross. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, Paul tells us that our our faith would be in vain. But he was raised from the dead. God validating the work of the Son had been fully completed. The wrath of God had been poured out on our sin, on his shoulders that he bore to the cross. I I believe to this to this day that the greatest pain and suffering that Jesus went through was not the beatings or the cross itself. The greatest pain and suffering, his father turning his back on him and the wrath of our sin that landed on the perfect, sinless Son of God. He became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. What an amazing thing that is. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. You can feel the heart of uh, John Newton in writing those words as he looked at scriptures like this. He then goes on. When he was raised from the dead, it tells us that he has taken his seat at the right hand of God. That's the seat of authority. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he got together with his disciples and he said, all authority has been given me in heaven and earth. All authority is his. It's not the President of the United States. It's not China. It's not some other person. All authority has been given to Jesus Christ and has taken his seat at the right hand of God. He says, all authority has been given to me, so now go boldly. I'm in control. I have authority. Go boldly and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them the all that I taught you. That's what we do in church today. Make disciples. Teach what, what Christ has taught us. And then he closed it by saying, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The ESV says, and behold, behold. We don't use that much today, do we? When was the last time you said behold? Behold that really cool house on the hill. Or behold this buck's huge horns. You know, this is a hunting place. Behold, we don't use that term much. But what he's saying is, take a look at this. Give me your attention. Focus on, on what I'm saying. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus did not leave his disciples as orphans, he said. If I go away, I'm going to send my spirit to you. And he said he will not only be with you, but he will be in you. All authority has been given him to accomplish the Father's purposes in our life, which is what? conformings to the image of his son and he uses that power to accomplish that very thing one one more thing that he lists here that our lord is doing for us that i absolutely love who indeed is interceding for us he is making intercession for us we just read that the holy spirit is also making intercession for us If we read through Hebrews chapter 7, it's going to say that Jesus ever lives 
to make intercession for us. So now I want to know what that means. What does that mean to me or to you today that he's making intercession for us? He's describing for us an effectual intercession. He is going to the Father and praying, and what Jesus asks of the Father, the Father gives. So that Jesus intercedes for us in being conformed to his image according to the will of the Father in all of these things. And the neat thing about this is the Bible gives us a peek behind the screen. He actually gives us a, a example of how this works in the life of Peter. I love this story. Uh, I'm just going to tell this part of it, but the story doesn't end with what I'm about to share. Jesus is about to go to the cross just a few hours away. He'll be beaten beyond recognition. He'll be nailed to a chunk of wood and stood up and left to die. And he's ha- having this intimate moment with his disciples. He turns to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, you know, when Jesus is going to call your name twice, you better pay attention. I learned that when my mother and my father called me by my name twice, I better pay attention. <laughs> Usually there was trouble coming. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. Satan wants to have at him. Jesus, your disciples, Peter, let me at him. I'm going to put him in the pressure cooker. I'm going to put him under strain and stress and watch his knees buckle. But, Jesus said, I have prayed for you. Jesus had made intercession for Peter beforehand. And the interesting thing is how he prayed. He didn't pray, Heavenly Father, please prevent Satan from having at Peter. Protect him so that he isn't put in the pressure cooker that Satan isn't allowed to have at him. Which is often our prayers when we run into troubles, isn't it? Please take this from me. It's not what Jesus prayed. This is what he prayed. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He was doing exactly what our passage tells us. He is going to cause all things to work for good so that Peter is conformed to his image. And it's going to be a tough one. It's going to be a tough lesson. But Jesus says, I've prayed, Peter, that when you get in that pressure cooker and hate Satan has at you, that your faith will not fail. You may stumble, you might fall, but you won't fail. Your faith will last. And then he, then he gave him a picture of why he wanted that to happen. He says, so that when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see how he was conforming Peter to his image? Peter, I'm going to let you go through the pressure cooker. Satan's going to have at you, but your faith isn't going to fail. But when you have been trained by the lessons learned within the pressure cooker, you're now equipped to encourage your brothers, to strengthen others, to step into the body of believers and know how to speak to another's hurting pain because you've been there yourself. To humbly 
see that other person as more important than yourself. He's conforming Peter to his image. And he says, I'm doing that for you. Doing that for me. He's interceding for us in the good and the bad and the ugly. Peter then posed another rhetorical question. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gives a list of trials that many believers who've gone on before have faced. But down at the end of those trials, verse 37, Paul says no to the question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No. In all these things, in all these trials, in all this suffering, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us, through Christ who loved us. We didn't do that in our own strength. It's the strength that Christ supplies. It's the strength the strength that he exhibited at the cross. But as I was reading this passage, it made me curious. Why did he have to put more than conquerors? Wasn't conquerors enough that we are conquerors through Christ? Why is more in there? We are more than conquerors. And I've been told that the Greek can be translated literally, that we are super conquerors. Now, there's a superhero word for you. Only we're not the superheroes in this story. Jesus is. But we have been joined with him. And he can say that you are super conquerors in Christ. Because all of these things that he listed, that the enemy means to destroy us, to tear us down, to pull us away from the love of our Savior, is going to fail. As a matter of fact, he's going to turn it around and exactly the opposite is going to happen. It's going to drive us to Christ. I want to read you a a little story. It's in 2 Corinthians near the end of the chapter. The experiences of Paul, and we can learn so much from those experiences. He's going to relay one of them that we might be able to connect with. Chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, verse 7. So to keep me, this is Paul speaking of himself, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me. A thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should be taken away from me. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We don't really know what it was. A lot of people believe that it was an eye ailment. But it was strong enough and and heavy enough weighing on him that he pleaded with the Lord. Pleaded with him, it says, three times. And the Lord said, no. It has a job to do. It's going to keep you from getting conceited, Paul. 
It's going to keep you from trusting your own strength, Paul. It's going to cause you to run to me because when you are weak and come to me, then you function in my strength and you're strong. In the same way, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Tribulation, I would define as the trials that come about because we live in a sinful, cursed world. There are such things as disease and sickness, broken relationships, the passing of loved ones, what we would consider to be the normal things of life, the trials. Shall tribulations separate us from the love of Christ? No, because he will hold me fast. Or distress. Distress might be defined as depression, discouragement, despair that comes upon us as we see what's going on in the world around us. Could be even fear as we fear what could be happening in the world that we live in and uh, what's it going to be like for our children when they grow up. Shall distress separate us from the love of Christ? No. No. He will hold me fast. Or persecution. Will that separate me from Christ? Uh, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. They're going to slander you and say all manner of evil against you. But rejoice and be glad for your reward is great. Nakedness. Famine. That could be defined as poverty. We can't afford the necessities of life, clothes, food. Will that separate me from the love of Christ? No, Paul says. He will hold you fast. Danger or sword could be defined as war or wicked men that rage against us. And the collateral damage that's created by war, we've seen that in our lifetime, haven't we? Two towers crumbling to the ground with the deaths of 3,000 people. The soldiers that are losing their lives on the battlefield to hold terrorism away from us. Will war? Will danger? Sword? No, Paul says. He will hold me fast. And at this point in our discussion, I don't want to go any further We'll conclude in a little bit, but we need to establish one more thing before we move on. And that is one of the questions in the outline that I gave you. Who are the us and the we in this narrative? Paul uses us or we 12 times. And it's imperative that we understand who those people are and who they are not. Not everybody is a recipient of the promises that that Paul is presenting here. A specific number, a specific few, those predestined are the ones that are going to receive this blessing. And I think we need to define who they are. We want to know who these are that God is for. We want to know who these are who are graciously given all things. Who are these whom God has sacrificed his son for? Who are these who cannot be condemned? Who are these who are declared to be just? 
Who are these who have been quitted, equitted of all charges against them? Who are these for whom Jesus and the Holy Spirit are interceding for? We can find the answers in what a lot of believers call the Romans road to salvation. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it simply says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It simply means what it says. Oftentimes we'll think, oh, I look at this wicked man over here and I'm better than him. I'm not Hitler. He's the most evil. So I'm not too bad. But God says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every last one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. He says then in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, he said, the wages of sin is death. So we start putting the pieces together, all of sin, the wages of sin is death. But he doesn't end it there. The story does not end there. He says, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's given us an answer. He's given us a champion that has come to rescue us. In Romans 10... Verses 9, he gives an, an explanation of how the transition happens between the man or the woman that is under this cloud of judgment because of their sin to a forgiven, adopted child of God. And this is how it goes. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with mouth one confesses and saved. He's making this very simple for us. We need a champion. We can't rescue ourselves. We are in a hopeless and a helpless condition, and we can do nothing about it. Jesus is that champion. And his death on the cross paid for my sins and yours. So he says, if we believe in our heart, that's our innermost being. That's, that's not this muscle that's pumping blood. It's our innermost being. It is who we are. If you believe this in your heart, you've taken it on. You've repented and turned to Christ for your salvation because you've realized you can't get there on your own. The thief on the cross next to Jesus is a perfect example. He confessed, I'm getting what I deserve. I was an evil man, and I'm dying for that. But he looked at that guy sitting next to him, whose name is Jesus, and he said, that guy can do something about it. And he turned to Jesus and he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus made a simple reply, today you're going to be with me in paradise. He believed in his heart that Jesus was the man that God sent to rescue him. He knew he was guilty. He said, remember me. He confessed with his mouth. The same is true for us today. And folks, if somebody is there that considers that he doesn't fit into that definition of the us and the we, maybe today is the time. Maybe this is a good time to examine yourself and see if you need to receive this Christ and the salvation that he is offering. That is the us and the we that Paul is talking about. Those who have believed in their heart 
that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God has raised him from the dead and have confessed such. They're saved. They're part of the us and the we, the predestined that God has determined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those who can face the trials and the difficulties of life and the things that Satan will throw at them to destroy them. And they will be more than conquerors. They'll be super conquerors. One other scripture uh, before I move on here that I think helps define for us what this super conqueror is. And that is at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54. It says, when the perishable, perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. There's our victory that Jesus has won. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the guilt of that. And the power of sin is the law that makes us, re- uh, makes us see our own sin. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus. Again, there is the us. There is the we. I'm glad that I'm part of that us and we. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then Paul goes into this last wonderful comment. For I am sure, he is absolutely sure of God's promises that have been validated by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Brothers, we stand resolutely in the shadow of the cross. And we cry out, He will hold me fast. He alone can hold me fast. He alone could save me. He could alone could call me and justify me. He alone can glorify me. It is Him alone that intercedes for me, that has predestined me to become conformed to His image. He alone. We stand beggars at the foot of the cross, receiving what he has freely given. I would like to conclude with one last word that's also from this same chapter, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says, and Paul knew a little bit about suffering, suffering for Jesus. So I consider these sufferings in this present time is not worth being compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us when Jesus comes. Folks, that is our hope But our hope is not wishful thinking. The believer's hope is an absolute assurance 
that the God who did not withhold his son for us, but gave him over for us all, will bring all of these promises to pass. We stand thankfully worshiping in the shadow of the cross. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are able to call you Father because your Son paid the debt of our sin so that we could be adopted and we could even cry unto you, Abba, Father. Lord, we thank you that our sin debt has been lifted from our shoulders and that Jesus, you bore it. We thank you that we have been purchased with a price and our lives are no longer our own, but they're yours. We thank you, Lord, that in your providence, you designed that the us and the we should gather together and remember these things. Rehearse these things to one another. Proclaim the gospel to one another. Lift up our voices in song. And now, Lord, as we close, we would like to sing to you from hearts that believe, from hearts that belong to you, because you alone are worthy. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.